This is a Main Hustle Media Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Jackie O and you're listening to Militantly Mixed. Yo, this is Rashani from the Single Simulcast. And when I'm not making you laugh or making up parody songs, I'm kicking back listening to Militantly Mixed. I would like to acknowledge that the Militantly Mixed podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Chumash and the Tongva people, and I wish to pay my respects to the people of those nations, both past and present. Hey y'all, welcome to Militantly Mixed, the podcast about race and identity from the mixed race perspective. I am your host, Charmaine, aka Mixed Girl Maine, the busiest mixed race bisexual polyamorous atheist comic book nerd cat mom podcaster in this podcasting game. So full disclosure, I just recorded like a 30 minute intro, which is fully unacceptable. I need to start keeping it tight. I need to start keeping notes so that I don't run over. So I'm going to try to take two, keep it tight for this week's episode because this is a good episode. We need we need to get to it. A few announcements that I do want to make on July 7th. That is the Tuesday of the week of July 5th. July 5th is the second anniversary of the first air date of Militantly Mixed. And July 7th will be the 100th episode of Militantly Mixed. So two milestones hitting in one week. So the 100th episode is also going to be the anniversary episode of Militantly Mixed. I was originally planning a live taping here in Los Angeles, but the pandemic and everything being what it is and us not knowing when large crowd gatherings can happen again. I'm pulling that idea and I'm going to figure out something to do virtually or make a special episode or something for for the episode 100. I'm open to suggestions. So if you feel like you want to share an idea with me, hit me up on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Militantly Mixed. Email me at Charmaine at MilitantlyMixed.com. That's S as in Sam, H-A-R, M as in Mary, A, N as in Nancy, E at militantlymixed.com or drop me a voicemail on my Skype line 323-545-6001 and leave me some ideas there because I'm open to what y'all are interested in. And with that in mind, also, I've talked about it the last couple of weeks, but the idea of how to support the show during the time of COVID keeps coming up. So I just want to let y'all know that while I do pitch my Patreon and my PayPal accounts on pretty much every episode. I do understand that this time is crazy right now and not all of us have resources to be able to contribute in that way, but I'll still put it out there for those of you who can and want to. If if you want to support the show financially, you can go to patreon.com slash militantly mixed and support the show that way. That is a monthly subscription where you donate as low as a dollar to as high as anything you wish, and there are different reward levels depending on what you choose. That is a regular, steady financial support that you can do for the show. You can also do PayPal as a one-time only donation, and that is paypal.me slash militantlymixed. And donations of those ways both go into the Militantly Mixed bank account and go back into the show in some way, shape, or form. And if you don't want to or can't or want to find a different, more creative way to support the show and actually a way that really helps grow the audience, I would ask you to retweet, regram, repost, share episodes of Militantly Mixed to your community. 
if you have heard an episode that really touches you and you think there's someone else in your life that it will benefit as well, send them an email or a message with that specific episode and tell them why it touched you and why you think it would mean something for them. That is one way where you can garner a really, you know, committed listener. You can also review the show on whatever podcatcher you listen to the show. So iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you're listening to the show right now, more than likely has a review tab or a way to review the podcast. If you do that that way, even Facebook page has a way to review the podcast. So if you do it that way, that actually bumps it up so that other people inside your circle or with that helps other people see that the show exists. And if they happen to be mixed and they are looking for a community, they'll they'll see the show. Those are ways that you can support the show that are meaningful and helpful in either financially support or growing the community. I think that growing the community is a um, really big benefit because the more people who hear our stories, the more the less people will be isolated in their mixedness. And the bigger the community gets, the more mixed race cousins we have. So whatever you can do to share the show and, and help us grow that way, I think will be meaningful and helpful. And I would really appreciate it. And especially now as we're finishing up our second year of doing this show, I think it's important to start thinking about ways that we can grow and expand even bigger because I don't feel like I'll be slowing down anytime soon. This is a major part of my life now, and it's really all I want to do. Unfortunately, I just have to uh, work to pay the bills. But if I didn't have to, I would be doing this all the time. I would be doing more community outreach to mixed race folks. I would be able to finish my comic book about my mixed race superhero a little bit faster. Um, eventually, I want to write a book. You know, I, I have plans in mixedness that I, I would really like to be able to accomplish. And one way of doing that is growing the show. So your help would be amazing. And is that all I have in terms of announcements? I think so. If you haven't yet participated, but you've been hearing me talk about it, this week's social distancing virtual hangout was bonkers. And I mean that in the most positive way possible. We had such a good conversation and we really got into it in terms of mixedness this week. It was, um, I was even pretty... <sighs> moved to the point that I actually cried on the virtual hangout, which was really uncomfortable for me because if you've been with me for a while, you know I'm uncomfortable with sharing emotion. But I was really moved by the participation and just looking at that gallery of mixed faces and, and hearing everybody's, you know, commitment to figuring it out. You know, some of us that are on the weekly hangouts are really comfortable in our mixed race skin. Some of us are just trying to figure out where do we fit some of us are trying to figure out which issue is the biggest issue that we should be putting our energy into. So all of us are coming at mixedness at different comfort levels, and yet everybody was participating regardless of their comfort level. And I was just really overwhelmed. I'm for those of you that were on the the group, I I know you know what I'm what I'm talking about. But for those of you that weren't, it was that was family time right there. That was, that was real heavy bonding for me. And I'm so appreciative of everybody who's been participating and we're going to keep those going for as long as it is, um, you know, logistically possible to do it. I, I do go back to work now on Sundays at the comic book shop. So I, I can't run long, but we will always do them on Sundays at 10 AM to 11 AM Pacific time, which is, uh, 1 PM Eastern 5 PM UK or GMT and 8 p.m. East Africa time. 
it's a pretty broad time period that'll catch a lot of places. It's been it's been nice to be able to start to like I'm just anticipating who's going to join every time I I initiate the thing. And when I start to see familiar names, I get excited. And when I see new names, I'm like, ooh, what are they going to add to the conversation today? So it was amazing. I was I was really appreciative of everybody. And I apologize for being emotional. And then I apologize for apologizing for being emotional because I am working on it. I'm trying to get better about my comfort with sharing emotion with people. And um, yeah, everybody was really kind to me about it. So I appreciate it. Uh, I think that's I think that's pretty good. I would like to get into this week's episode because uh, we're doing big things on this episode. My guest today is Camila. She was recommended to me through Dakota, which you heard from a couple weeks ago. She is also a co-director of the Mixed Student Union at UCLA, and she is about to graduate. Her family has started a nonprofit called Asian Americans for Housing and Environmental Justice. They do a lot of work in the Koreatown and South Central communities. They have a fundraiser page. They have their organization Facebook page. And they also operate out of a family restaurant, which I believe is called Revolutionario LA. So I'm going to share the Instagram and the Facebook pages in the show notes. So if after listening to this episode, you want to hear more, please go on over to the show notes so that you can click and support those organizations. I'm excited to, to meet and talk with people that are, you know, boots on the ground trying to do things to to help improve living conditions for underserved communities. And especially right now in the time of COVID, we really need to be thinking village-based and not the self, you know, or the family. We are only going to survive if we are all taking care of each other. That's why we're wearing masks, because we have to act as if we have it and we don't want to spread it. That is why we are social distancing. That is why we are safer at home for as long as we are, you know, it's possible for us to do so. And I'm really excited to to be sharing Camila's story and hearing about the work that her family organization is doing. If you are also doing some sort of community service related to COVID right now, please send me the details so that I can start talking about them and sharing it on the intros and on my social media. Like I said, we need to be thinking in terms of the village. And if you are able to support your local community, or you're able to do things on a broad scale, I want to know how we can support. In my case, I don't have a lot of money to give. So I find ways of giving that either is highlighting programs through my platform, which is Militantly Mixed and Blurred Comics, or I have like this small skill of kind of knowing how to sew. And so I'm working on masks right now so that I can donate them in my community. Everything that you do is important, even if it if you can give $10, but you can't give 100 that $10 goes to someone who needs it. If you can sew masks or you can create um, care packages or something like that, if you can do a food drive, these types of things are really important. And if you are actively doing that right now, please let me know so that I can share those details of how people in your community can support you or in the mixed race community as a whole. If I had my way, if I had enough money to be able to do this, Militantly Mixed would not just be a podcast. It would be a nonprofit organization that helps support mixed race families. I would have a mixed race summer camp, which I have been in talks with someone about in the past. But, you know, life being what it is right now, I don't know when we're going to be able to get that off the ground. I would be doing other service to my community beyond this show. And 
since I can't do that stuff yet, what I can do is highlight what you're doing. So please send me what you're doing or the organizations that you're aware of, and I will help elevate them through my platforms however I can. Um, yeah, I think that's good. It's, it's time to get into the episode. So again, my guest this week is Camila. She is from UCLA, the Mixed Student Union, and she is also part of a organization called Blasian Narratives, which we also talk about, uh, which is obviously a Black and Asian community. And they do a what is called docu-theater, sharing Blasian narratives out in the world. So she's doing a lot of stuff within Mixedness, and I'm excited to be sharing her story with y'all today. Don't forget to go to the show notes. You'll see all the things that we talk about on this episode and more over there. And without further ado, please help me in welcoming our latest cousin to the Militantly Mixed family, Camila. So my guest today is Camila. Why don't you introduce yourself, tell everybody who you are and what you're about, and let's get into it. So my name is Camila. I'm a fourth-year political science student at UCLA. I'm graduating, I guess, in like a couple of weeks now. Or I mean, okay, like six weeks. Is it going to feel really, it's, there's no hard transition to like graduate to non-graduate after this semester. It's going to be so weird for you. Just like, okay, I'm done with taking my online classes now. Oh, no. Are you going to have like a virtual graduation or anything like that? Well, UCLA, our chancellor said that we might have some sort of virtual graduation, but I don't really see the point in that. Yeah. So I had a real graduation for my undergrad, but I had a virtual graduation for my, my graduate, but I didn't turn the button on. So like, I just didn't go. I just didn't do it. Actually, I think I was filming that day. I was doing a project or something like that anyway. So there was that period of time of like knowing I had a degree (laughs) and having to remember that I had it, but I didn't have a milestone, I guess. Okay. So I interrupted with a question. What all do you do at UCLA? Um, So I am one of the directors for Mixed Student Union. Um, And outside of UCLA, I'm also a member of Blasian Narratives, which is like a docu-theater slash like collective of makes Black and Asian people who want to, like, I don't know, like, share resources, share stories. Um, We recently did a virtual writing workshop uh, with people from UC Davis. Okay. So for Blasian Narratives, what we do is we'll get invited out to different schools and events. And so they usually do, like, a screening of the docu-theater, and then we Mm -hmm. do a performance and Q&A. But we also have this writing workshop that we've developed to kind of help people find ways to write and talk about their own mixed identities too. Okay. Um, so with Davis this past week, we were supposed to go a couple of weeks ago, but we ended up not being able to because yeah. of the pandemic. So we just did it online. Yeah. So explain a little bit what Docu Theater looks like to someone who's never gotten a chance to see it or participate. So the Docu Theater is basically a collection of our different cast members performing monologues about their identities. Okay. It was actually made in like 2016 
I wasn't part of it because I was still, at that point, I was a senior in high school and all of the original cast members were um, about to graduate from undergrad. Mm-hmm. And we're working on trying to develop a second volume. Okay. But all of us are basically in different parts of the U.S. So it's pretty difficult to like right. add a whole docu-mentary like, or docu-theater. I actually cannot believe I have not heard about this. There's so often I'm looking for Black Asian things because there's just like no... In, ter- in terms of the sub-communities of mixedness, there's not like a hub anywhere that that I've been able to find. And I cannot believe I haven't been able to find y'all. And then when Dakota came to me about participating in the Mixed Race Heritage Conference and had in one email at some point mentioned mentioned you and Blasian Narratives, I was like, what the hell is this thing? You know, I, I guess not searching the correct words or whatever, po- probably because I don't often use Blasian for myself. I use Black Anise, but I feel like I should have searched or found you in some kind of way. Now I can, now I can see you and you pop up like you're on my notifications. So I see it pop up, but... How did you find these people? How did you get involved in this? Um, so I was a freshman in college, and I have another friend. Their name is Kyla, and they're um, white and Japanese. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how they found it, but they shared the docu-theater on Facebook. And, mm-hmm. like, I saw it, and then, like, right when I saw it, I just decided to, like, sit down and watch it. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I can relate to so much of what they're saying. And then like a week later, they put out an open call for like new people to join. And I was just like, well, I have to join. Did you have a chance before that to have ever shared what it's like for your experience to be a mixed Asian person, mixed black and Asian person? Or was this kind of like the door opening opportunity for you? A little bit because I didn't really start thinking of it that much until like senior year of high school because it was something I just tried to not think about. And so, but senior year of high school, I was becoming, I was the editor in chief of my high school's newspaper. Okay. So I had like my own little column. And so I would write a lot about like black issues. And so, I that just like got me thinking so much more mm-hmm. about myself and how these issues also affect me and like my life and what I can do to help. And then also thinking of my privilege as like mm-hmm. a mixed person and a light skinned person. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote a couple of things about being mixed, but nothing specifically about being like Algerian or black or Korean. Mm-hmm. But I did for my personal statement for college. And then I also joined MSU and then just went into like this whole thing about like being mixed. Mm -hmm. So for me, like my family is very mixed. Everybody's mixed because both of my parents are biracial. So all my cousins are mixed. And so we pretty much just grew up around mixed people and we were military kids. So that was another layer of seeing a lot of mixed people. And I understand that during the course of the show, I have now understood that that is a very unique position as a mixed person to actually see a lot of other mixed people. I'm engaging with a lot of people now who will tell me I'm the first mixed person outside of their family they've ever spoken to or anything like that. So that started to become like a something that I should really take seriously as as a weight in terms of making sure I'm sensitive to people who may never have been around people that are like us. Uh, in your case, besides your family, was college your first insertion into a world of mixedness or how did it work for you? I mean, since I 
was in elementary school, I was pretty like cognizant of being mixed and understanding that my parents are from two different parts of the world and that they speak like they grew up speaking different languages mm-hmm. and whatnot because my dad was also born and raised in France. So and even from a bit of a removal from his own nationality mm-hmm. and ethnicity. Mm-hmm. And then my mom came to the U.S. when she was five. And so I always, like, we would have conversations about it, and I would also note differences in, like, our skin tones, like, Mm -hmm. when I was really little. But I just didn't realize, like, how important it was to, like, other people. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think that much about, like, other people's projections of my ethnicity. Right. Um, But then, like, in middle school and high school is when people would start asking. Oh, that, that late? Mm-hmm. Oh, because wow. I guess when I was in elementary school, I went to this French international school. Oh, okay. That makes and, sense then. <laughs> like, there were a couple of other mixed kids, but they were mainly half Asian, half white, or mm-hmm. and half white. And since so many people were colonized by the French, also what I understand of French schools is it's usually a whole bunch of people that are coming from countries that also have a French background in some way, shape or form, Vietnam, parts of Africa, things like that. Like, okay, so, so you actually did get to kind of see mixed people, but there was the, the, the joined element was the French mm-hmm. aspect for you. So how many languages do you speak? Um, so I speak French and Korean. Okay. And also English. But my French is pretty rusty now. I think if I were to like get back into it, it'd be solid. But my dad and I, my dad came to the U.S. when he was like 28, 29. Mm-hmm. But like we mainly speak English with each other or he'll say something to me in French and I'll just respond in English. Mm. I feel like that is both the like child of immigrant families and mixed kid experience where because same with my grandma like my grandma wanted to only speak English and so I would try to speak Japanese to her and she would answer me back and so it was like the backwards way she like English was important for her to get down and she was also told by the military not to keep teach her kids Japanese because they would confuse their brains mm-hmm. 50s um <laughs> the 50s and so it was always frustrating part that like I felt like I could never get any kind of mastery because mm-hmm. my grandma was also working on her own mastery of, of language. And I didn't understand how important that was until I guess I got a little bit older. Do you use it as a way to communicate around people when you don't want people to know what you and your dad are talking about? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that part. That's my favorite part. <laughs> but like my dad has gotten in trouble so many times for trying to do that because like, he'll say something and then the person he's talking about will end up like knowing French. Oh no. (laughs) Like know enough. And like a lot of bad words in French, like you can guess what they are. Yeah. You can guess what they are. Yeah. (laughs) Not that far off from English. So it's pretty hard to be like discreet. (laughs) That's funny. Probably a little bit easier to do in Korean, at least here in the States, just because short of other Koreans being around. Although I don't know, a lot of white kids listen to K-pop now, so maybe they'll figure it out. I mean, that's kind of what happened with that <laughs> was when anime blew up for white kids and all of a sudden they start walking around going, non desu ka? And I'm just like, oh. I know. Okay. 
Well, it's not even that they say it correctly. It's that they say, you know what they're trying to say, but they haven't quite nailed it. And it's just painful. <laughs> but that's nothing. <laughs> so, okay. So you get to college and you kind of have access points to a bunch of different mixedness. Have you always felt like you knew what you were? Like, did you feel pretty comfortable in your understanding of what you were as a, as a mixed race kid? I... I always knew that I was Algerian and Korean, but I didn't really know like what it really meant to Mm -hmm. be either of those things or even like both of those things at the same time. Are you viewing that as mixed ethnicity or as multinationality? I guess both because at least for like both of my parents, like, their situations are pretty unique. Like, not mm-hmm. a lot of um, Asians, my mom's age, uh, came to the U.S. that early. Mm. And so she is honestly, like, pretty Americanized. Okay. And the only reason I speak Korean is because my grandparents made us go to Korean school. Oh, okay. And then my dad being, like, not just Black, but from a North African country, but then his family left Algeria after the war of independence against Mm -hmm. France. And so he grew up in France and then he also came here. So like finding people to relate. Yeah. He's got a lot of layers to try to contend with too. And then, and then he ends up having mixed kids. So that's a whole nother thing of like, you're not quite like me either. Mm -hmm. Wow. How was your extended families in terms of identity, like how they treated you growing up as Um, we never, so my dad's family still lives in France and we don't really communicate with them that much, to be honest. After he moved, things got like pretty tense with that. My mom's side of the family lives here. She has two older brothers and her parents and aunt also live here. And we have like other, um, like some of her cousins also live here and they're all Korean. None of them are mixed. Mm. Um, but my mom is the youngest of her two other brothers and so she was babied a lot mm. and she was, like the favorite so then her kids are also like the favorite <laughs> okay that's generational that's that's handy <laughs> and then my brother is the baby of the baby mm. so he's just like he's extra special yeah that's funny <laughs> <laughs> that's cute so how do people code you like how do they decide for you what you get to be It's honestly, like, growing up in L.A., like, I've gotten, like, so many different, like, things from so many different people. Like, Mm -hmm. I'll get, like, Hawaiian. I'll get, I've even gotten Dominican and Chinese Mm -hmm. before, which is, like, so specific. Oh, like, they they knew mixed, but they decided that what your mix was was Dominican and Chinese? Yeah. That's pretty special. I haven't gotten that yet. (laughs) (laughs) I've gotten, um, like, various forms of, like, Latina from, like, mm-hmm. Venezuelan to, like, Mexican to whatever. Um, one person thought I was just fully white, which... But your face. <laughs> <laughs> that was the most confusing thing ever. Right. Because for me, like, you do code as mixed, but you you're clearly for me a mixed Asian person and then it's digging a little bit more to find what the rest of your mix is. Mm -hmm. Whereas me, like I don't, I know black people can tell what I am. 
I know people think I'm Dominican or Filipino or something, you know, but I don't like no Japanese on the planet will ever look at me and be like, oh, you must be a mixed Japanese girl. Like that's never once going to never has happened, never will happen in my life. Do Koreans know? Um, sometimes it's really like hit or miss. Um, sometimes they'll think they'll know that I'm Asian, but then be surprised that I'm half Korean mm. or like, but like when I, I live pretty close to Koreatown also. So I go there pretty often to like, mm-hmm. eat or like groceries. And when like I go, like I'll speak to the like right. and Korean and stuff. And I never know like if they're going to respond back in Korean or if okay. they're going to respond back in English. Cause both of those things have happened. Do, so one thing I don't know if Koreans do this that Japanese do is like a Japanese person will straight up pretend that they don't understand your Japanese if you don't look full Japanese. And you could be flu- like I've I've known white people that were more fluent than I'm not even remotely fluent. I know white people that are fluent. I've known black people that are fluent. I've known other Asians that were fluent in Japanese and a Japanese person will respond to them like, I don't understand your foreign language that you're speaking. Does that have because, you know, Japanese can be pretty we are Japanese and everybody else is other. Do Koreans do that? I don't know if they do. (laughs) I've never had that experience. I've never heard anyone else have that experience. I feel like mostly if you know any Korean, even if you don't look Korean, they'll often be like pretty impressed even. Man, I love that. I really (laughs) wish I could have that because if I do it, I get, if I do speak Japanese in front of Japanese that I'm not related to, they'll either ask me why I sound like an old lady and that's because I speak my grandmother's Japanese, like I, scrape, I speak old lady Japanese, and I didn't know that. Or I sound like a person who at least can do the vowel sounds, but really doesn't have fluency, like, at all. So that's awesome that they treat you good for speaking. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Okay, I don't normally ask how people are coded by outsiders. It's only started to be it's only started to be something that I've asked lately because it's started to come up and I, I feel like the show has sort of had these like peaks and valleys of similar guests popping up around the same time, like people who have similar experiences. And uh in the early days of the show it was a lot of white passing or white presenting people were all kind of coming around at the same time. And then there was a big period of time of like Afro Latinx and things like that would all kind of pop up at the same time. And now what I'm noticing is what I'm getting is people that are just like being told they are something mm-hmm. and them having to decide if they're going to tell you what their mix is. You know, like, I, I mean, I know I get it all the time because people do think I'm Dominican or Filipino. And then I have to decide, am I going to let them think this or if I'm going to use this time to educate or, or whatever like that. Uh, and you, I... So off air, I was telling you that you're the first person I've ever met that is also a black Asian mixed person that actually is light skin presenting like I am. And I was kind of like, oh, I didn't realize until I saw you that I didn't see that, that I haven't seen this before, you know, besides my brother and I and some of my cousins. And I, I'm curious because you are also mixed Asian, how often Asians accept it? Because, I mean, I come from the Asian culture just, just like, oh, no, we don't do that. And I know that there's varying degrees in other Asian cultures of whether or not they're more accepting or or more curious, I guess, about the mixed race uh, children that that are produced from their cultures. And uh, and Japanese just aren't that way. So I'm a little. That's why, like, that's why the questions I'm I'm asking the kind of questions I'm asking is because like 
you and I both being lighter skin presenting mixed black Asians, I'm wondering how often some of the things that have happened to me have happened to you similarly, but also understanding that all of our cultures are different and they treat their mixed people differently. In, in this UCLA and you being involved in all these mixed things, have you found that it's, it's kind of skewed your views on other things that, you, that are important to you in your life, like your, your major and things like that? Are you kind of skewed more towards mixed race identity as a result? I think so. Like for, like if I'm writing like research papers, like I'll try to choose something related to like race or ethnicity. And if I can, I'll write something about mixed race identity Mm -hmm. because, but that's been kind of difficult because there aren't that many like academic sources. No resources. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, and if there are, it's always about like mixed black and white people. Exactly. That was the (laughs) thing I was going to say is like, that's part of my mix. So sometimes it hits, but sometimes it hits in a, in the opposite direction than the way my mix functions. So I'm just figuring out like, how are we, we're uh, uh, the generation that's kind of more actively mixed right now, like out in the open mix. It's our job, I guess, right now, unfortunately, to start putting, producing those academic papers so that there is actually stuff going forward. But when you're a college student, you're just like, I have to figure this out on my own. Isn't aren't I here to learn this kind of stuff? Mm-hmm. So how are you managing? Um, it often ends up like me having to kind of choose. Like I'll I'll be like, okay, I'll take like this African American studies class, and then I'll also take this Asian American studies class, mm. or I'll choose something more broad, like a labor studies class. But then when it's something more broad and I'm picking like my final paper topic, I'll always end up writing about black women or the issues that black women face. Okay. Just because I feel more of like a duty to educate myself and try to educate other people on issues like that. Because I mean, not to like fall into the model minority myth, but I feel like there's usually a lot more like people advocating for like Asian issues, mm-hmm. American issues. I agree. And Until a coronavirus or something like yeah. that happens. And then you start to see the flip, right? Mm-hmm, for sure. But then even with that, like there's so many things like because of the nonprofit that my family started, we are also helping like other Asian businesses and doing outreach to like seniors and also families. And so we see like this, and there's other like API organizations like SICA, I, I think it's like Southeast Asian Coalition, something else. And then there's like Koreatown Immigrant Workers Alliance mm-hmm. that are all like helping out within like the Asian community. Mm-hmm. But then once we like got those bases covered, my mom was like, wait, there's also all these black seniors in South Central right. that need help and like who's advocating for them, you know? Right. So how, um, I'll, I'm going to get back to this, but I got to ask a question to get back <laughs> over to, to what I'm trying to think of. How was your family received as, as not only just presentation wise of mixed black and Asian family, but then also the layer of both your parents coming from, from other places? Like how, how did you all maneuver mm-hmm. as a family in either Asian or black spaces? Well, I feel like as a family, when the four of us are all together, it like clicks in people's minds and mm-hmm. they won't understand. They're like, okay, those are the parents. Those are the kids. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. It all adds up. 
But if it's like me and my mom or me and my dad or like my mom and my brother or my dad and my brother out or even my brother and I together out, Mm -hmm. people just do not understand. Like, so if you go into a place like your mother and you are advocating for black seniors, mm -hmm. is it these two Asian women coming in here and helping or is it like, oh, this is a mixed family and they're here to help? I think when we're in like, when my mom and I have gone to like different community meetings in South Central, people, it's like pretty welcome that there's like a non-Black person coming in and like lending a hand. And then they see me with my mom and like, it makes more sense. Mm-hmm. They're like, okay, the daughter's like, that's obviously her daughter. And the daughter's obviously mixed and they're in this space. So mm-hmm. the daughter's probably part Black. Right. I grew up in, in Long Beach during the LA riots and since South Central and Koreatown do kind of closely kind of butt up against each other. And I know that when I was growing up, those tensions of those two communities were pretty heavy. I don't know how it transitioned since then. Like, I don't know if there is more of a symbiotic relationship between the two communities or if they're looking after each other, or if maybe because of coronavirus, they're starting to look after each other because they're both in a similar boat of Black and Asian people can't seem to walk around without, with masks without being attacked and things like that. I don't have access to the community right now, so I don't know what's happening over there. Because I'm on the west side, so I don't get to see it. It's definitely a lot better now. Um, but I think there's, there's still a couple of like Asian businesses here. So I live like kind of right in between. I live on like Jefferson and Normandy. Okay. And so... There's definitely still a lot of, like, old-school Asian businesses, um, like, around Crenshaw and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, like, there's this one Korean, uh, like, cafe, diner kind of place, and they've been there for a really long time. And you go in and, like, you see the Korean, like, owners in the kitchen, and then, like, you see these old black people come in saying, like, Annyeonghaseyo, and, like, they, the owners, like, really like it. And so it's definitely, like, a lot better now, and... Okay a lot of the resources that we get to help these black seniors come from like other Asian orgs. Okay. And, like other Asians that are like fundraising for us and like donating to our mm-hmm. organization. And so I think, and I think just because of a lot of the privilege that East Asians have, it's really like more our responsibility to do the outreach, mm-hmm. like lend a hand to communities in like South Central. Yeah. That was always I think it was because I was a mixed Black and Asian kid specifically, it was always frustrating to see that the various Asian communities didn't get along or that the various, like whatever the closest Black community to whatever the closest Asian community didn't necessarily get along. And, you know, as a mixed kid, you're frustrated by that because you're like, I'm both these things and I can't choose between them. You know, they're they're both of the things that I, I have going on. But the the... You, we see something like what's happening with the treatment of Asians through COVID that reminds everybody that at the end of the day, we have more in common to be joining up and supporting each other, I think, than sort of the, the white affluent side that is um, boxing us and separating us in these, in these ways that help aid the racism, I think. And so to, to not have known 
I left California for a really long time and then I came back and, um, and I just, I'm reinserting myself back into LA and I end up on a predominantly Japanese side, you know, well, white and Japanese side of town. Um, so it's the first time I'm also, you know, in a Japanese community. I've never lived in a Japanese community before. And I, because I don't see that many black people in the Japanese area over here, I'm like, oh, so now we have it. Like I knew it was going on on your side of town back when I was growing up, but I never got to see it on, you know, with my side uh, of people. And it's, um, I'm, I don't know how to say this. It doesn't sound just totally trash, but that idea of like, I hope that we find this, we find a way to like unite these communities right now because of what's happening. Because I think we, we need each other in a way that something like this has to happen to reveal. Yeah. Um, I hate feeling like that. I hate feeling like that, but it's, but it's absolutely like, it, that's what it feels like, especially as a mixed kid. So what is, what's happening for you after this? I mean, besides the fact that you're going to graduate, non-graduate, um, what's your, what's your future direction? Um, well, I guess the most immediate thing is applying to law school. <laughs> okay. Which I'm planning on doing in the fall. And ideally, I'd study law at UCLA because they have this, like, race and, like, social justice concentration for right. law school, which is, like, perfect. Um, the right intersection of all the things that are priorities for you in one program, that's, that would be awesome. So what is your goal is to, to practice law in protection of people of color mm-hmm, predominantly? Pretty, yeah, I've, like, in, I've noticed that I mean, obviously, it's hard to prioritize, like, one aspect of social justice, um, but because, like, it's all intersectional. But in high school, I really focused a lot on, like, intersectional feminism. Okay. But then just being, I guess, like, in college, like, you're exposed to so many more people, and I started being involved in so many more, like, race-based or, like, ethnic or, like, cultural orgs. Mm -hmm. And so that's been like, such a big focus, and, like, racial justice has been such a big focus of mine lately. So are you trying to marry, I don't want to put the word in your, in your mouth or anything like that, do you view your participation in the cultural groups as activism? Well, I mean, I guess I would say that MSU is kind of a cultural org. Mm-hmm. That's, like, how we're officially, like, listed, mm-hmm. uh, even though we do a lot of like we do workshops, we do discussions, we like go to the beach and stuff like that. But I guess since we all share like aspects of our respective cultures, I would say it's like a cultural org. Um, but like I definitely see like me reclaiming aspects of my culture as okay. a form of activism. Just in like, I feel like a lot of the, oh, I feel like a big thing people assume about mixed identity is that we're, like, watered-down version mm-hmm. of, like, each thing. Yeah. So, or that, like, oh, you're only half this, so you shouldn't participate in that. Right. So I feel like I'm, you know, just even when I, like, make Korean food or make, like, North African food, I'm reclaiming, like, parts of my culture and my identity that people would assume that I wouldn't, you know? Right. Right. So is the idea of practicing, well, what kind of law exactly are you going to try to practice then? Like, 
that is still like up in the air. <laughs> because when you're like when you're talking about your earlier um, time as kind of being more focused on intersectional feminism, and then you get to college and you have like this explosion of all this other stuff, I. Uh, that's actually one of the biggest regrets for me is that I didn't actually end up practicing law like I originally wanted to. I ended up going a different way because of my family. And um, I see that I see the social social justice issues now, uh, racial justice issues. And I'm like, man, what would I even do? Would I focus on bail reform? Would I, you know, bail protections? Would I focus on like black mothers being able to put their kids in a school that they feel comfortable with without being jailed for 40 years because they broke a, a district line or something like that. You know, I feel like it, it would almost be overwhelmed. Like, like you almost don't know where to start. Like that's kind of how militantly mix even started. It's just like, I don't know what I need to, I know what I want to do with this show, but I don't know. I think I can't do all those things. So like, what is the most important aspect that popped out? And in the beginning, it was sort of like conversational mixedness, you know, creating a footprint of mixed narratives, you know, out there. And, um, and now that I've been at it for a little while, I'm, I'm trying to figure out like, where's my entry point into the, into the activism part that I had wanted to do when I started this show. And I am overwhelmed by the possibilities of what to choose. And I'm sure it shifts many times over, over the course of your education too, like what you end up going into. But that feels like the, the right spot. Like it's, it's putting all of your things into, you know, your, your, all of your interests and passions into one kind of program. Well, I hope you get it. When do you find out? Like, do you, are you taking, what happens? What is even happening right now with this thing? Do we go right into school? Do we take time off? Like what's happening? Well, I, I always planned on taking a year off before law school. Okay. Just because I know, like, I would just kind of drive myself insane. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, like, I plan on taking a year off anyway, but I do have to take the LSAT later this year. Mm. So, and I think it's online now, but I'm... I've been like procrastinating so much. <laughs> yeah, it's tough too, like being home right now. Well, I'm I'm still working out outside of the home, but um, the the other position that I have that allows me to work from home, it's just like uh, remembering to start your day. Yeah, you know, it's kind of tough right now, and I thrive when I'm at home. So it's weird to even right now. It's really just because the pressure of what's going on in the world. It's yeah, is kind of informing that. You don't want it to go too long, but at the same time, you want to give yourself rest and you want, you know, your mental health to be established. You want to take a break because you've just had, you know, your undergrad has had his ups and downs, I'm assuming, in terms of difficulty. So you, you want to take these breaks. And then just like the loss of the social aspect that you probably do also thrive on. Like, I mean, I knew it was very possible that the Mixed Race Heritage Conference was going to get canceled, but at the time I was still in that sort of disbelief thing of like, it's, I don't think I was all the way to, it's just the flu. I don't think I was that far away, but I wasn't just like, it's May though. By May, this will burn off, right? Like by May, everything will go back to normal. So uh, for me, it was, it was kind of crushing, but like, I'm also not a senior who's been involved in the, in the program that has been organizing it for all this time too. So where do you go from here in terms of your, I mean, I want to say that what you're experiencing and what like Dakota is experiencing too, being involved in school in a mixed race organization, like where do you go after that? Do you think in terms of being able to still engage in your mixedness uh, on a social level? Well, I think, 
Well, like at least for me with Glacier Narratives, um, we have like a couple of group chats going. We do like check in with each other and we'll share things that we think are like funny or like cool or whatever related to being mixed. And then um, like some of my like per- like close friends are also mixed. Um, and even the ones that aren't mixed, they're great in terms of like me being able to talk to them about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like now I can, now that my brother, my brother's 17 now. And so he's kind of getting there in terms of like thinking oh, okay. of identity. So we'll have like little conversations about it here and there. Um, there's also like Facebook groups. Like, I don't know if you know about Blasians Unite also. Nope. I don't but know. it's run by Jonathan Gibbs. And I think he also has a podcast. I don't think it's about being Blasian, but it's about something. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll look it up. <laughs> I think when I first started this show, I the idea of sort of the general mixedness and covering all sides was important. I started getting nervous when I was getting so many stories about the white presenting mixed people because one, I wasn't equipped myself necessarily, besides being an ear for people who had that presentation, not coming to it from an experience side. I was getting nervous that, you know, my show was turning into that kind of thing. And then, like I said, it kind of meandered into a different direction for a period of time. And so there's times when it's pretty much like my wheelhouse of mixedness is what we're covering. And then we kind of goes off and then it's this area of mixedness I didn't have access to before. Now I'm learning a lot. And then it kind of, you know, it, it keeps doing that. Um, because of COVID, we're now doing the social distancing virtual hangouts on Sundays, which is allowing some of the regular listeners um, to come on and, and some new people have, have joined too. And this is, again, their first time that they're in a group conversation with mixed people in a lot of cases. And so there's different things like that, that I think will be a good way that depending on how long we continue to social distance allows people or for people who live in places who don't have access to mixed people, you know, it's a way to, to keep people joined and, and feel like they hear their stories. Um, that's the, I guess that's kind of the priority with militantly mixed in particular is being able to hear a story that you may identify with, because I mean, I imagine it was the same for you growing up if you did see mixed people and you got excited, you saw them, what you normally saw was a black and white biracial kid of a black and white interracial family. You so rarely saw Asian mixes. And if you did see Asian mixes, they were white and Asian. And it usually had a gross story that had to do with military or the war, (laughs) you know, in some way, shape or form. So like, I would find these little nuggets here and there, like, oh, that's like my family. That's like my family, but nothing that really kind of, joined all aspects of of my mixedness and so that's one thing that I do love about this show is getting an email from somebody who heard somebody's episode and they're like you don't understand how close it was like I was telling my story but it was coming out of somebody else's mouth and that kind of thing I is the thing that makes this kind of stuff important and worth it to to have these these bonds and these connections based off of just hearing another mixed person tell a tale similar and I love that there's so much access now for because I'm I'm older than you and I didn't have that in college like I joined the black student union and I joined the Asian American groups and really quickly I would be kind of turned away from the Asian group because I really wasn't really an Asian you know like I was a mixed one and and on top of that like I didn't speak fluently enough for the some of the ones that I attempted to join it was like at least you could find another person of your culture that you could you could communicate with so 
you know, the Koreans could pair off and the Chinese could pair off and the Filipinos could pair off. But Japanese don't teach their kids Japanese here usually. They come here and they assimilate. So there was all of us like half or mixed Japanese that were just sitting there like, ah. <laughs> you know, we just didn't have a, a way to really join and connect. And so I always identified more closely with my black side because that was the side that embraced me. You know, that was the side that, that made it easy for me to be mixed in their presence. And so now that there's all these organizations that actually exist where you can just like be your full mixed ass selves and you don't necessarily have to, I guess what I'm saying is that in, in Asian spaces, I do feel like a watered down Asian. Um, and in black spaces, I never felt watered down um, or that they were putting that on me or anything like that. Um, so it's nice to to see that this is a thing that's happening. And I'm like, I'm half je- jealous and half just like so excited to see what it does for mixed people as they get older too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm excited about it. Uh, one thing that I like to do as the show starts to wrap up is I like to ask all of my guests, because we do talk about trauma sometimes, we talk about some difficult aspects of mixedness. I like to end the show asking, what do you love most about being mixed race? Uh, I guess I just love... all the, like diversity just within my own family mm-hmm. and like all the access I have to like different like foods and like knowledge bases and you know like yeah. and like I could like a conversation with my dad like about him like growing up in like a village in France is like so different than a conversation with my mom like going back to Korea when she was like eight years old mm-hmm. and, like seeing what that was like. Yeah. did want to ask you, because you mentioned food earlier. Do you have a hybrid dish? Do you have something that you've been able to figure out how to combine all of your cultural heritages into one food? Um, Or a crossover food? That's the other thing. Something that works for both. Do you have either (laughs) of those things? Um, I guess there's a lot of like... I don't think North African and Korean food like go together that well, but a lot of like Southeast Asian and North African food go together well. So like we have these like scallion pancakes, so I'll have that and then I'll have it with like egg and merguez and merguez is like this spicy lamb and beef sausage. Okay. Makes. And the combination of the two things work really good. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Uh, as we kind of round up, though, I, I do appreciate you coming on. And, and this is like, I will say, look, this one's so different because I, I do usually like chat with people beforehand and we've kind of been, you know, attached to an email chain for a little bit. So we didn't really get to know each other too much beforehand. But I, I was so excited. Like, I can't tell you how, well, you probably might get it. I don't know. I can't tell you how excited it was to like, see your face and just be like, oh my gosh, another, another <laughs> black Asian that's light like me like that. That's actually hit pretty hard. I think this is probably the third or fourth time I brought it up, but like, seriously, it, it's had a big effect. So thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to me about your experience and what you're doing in terms of engaging as a black Asian mixed person in telling stories about what it's like to be us. I think the concept behind Blasian narratives is super important because like I was saying earlier, in all the subcategories of mixedness, I feel like black Asian culture, uh, like as mixed people, our cultural connections can be really dicey. 
whether or not we get full access. And one thing I did want to ask you earlier is uh, since your family, your black side of your family is from Algeria by way, and then France through here, do you access blackness as an Algerian black person or do you access blackness as a American because you grew up here? I honestly ask myself that question all the time too because like a lot of Algerians now identify as Arab for the mm-hmm. most part. Yeah. My dad's family, both of his parents are Berber. Okay. Which are the indigenous people of North Africa. And like, but even Berbers, like there's a lot of like um, variation in like how they'll look because they were also nomads. So mm-hmm. they like went they all They picked over. up things from everywhere, yeah. And so like, even being like that specific of a thing of, of like being Berber, like being Berber, Algerian, and then my dad's from France and then now we're in LA. I know. hard and I'm always trying to like, because my dad has like a thick French accent, you know, like he is not very American yeah. <laughs> at all. And so I still have a hard time being like, I don't want to like overstep anything or like. In terms of black American? Yeah. Right. Okay. Because it's like, I feel like people, non-black people often like see blackness as like just this monolith and just like. Right only this one thing that we see in America when there's so many other forms of blackness. And to be fa- like, to be really, really honest and just putting it out on front street, there's a lot of black dogs that doesn't get along with each other. Like, you know, there's a heavy pride in various Caribbean cultures and various African cultures. They feel separate from black Americans. You know, we black Americans are the stolen children and we don't have a bridge back home anywhere. So like, to put every black person in this monolithic category is just like, man, you all don't know. <laughs> so it's interesting. Actually, I feel like we probably need to do a part two at some point because it would be interesting to understand those layers, you know, the Berber relationship to the modern day Algerians, I guess. I don't know if that would be the right way to word that. Um, and because there is such an influence of, of Arab people in there, not to mention all of the people that have colonized different aspects, you know, there's so much of that going on. And then being raised in France and then coming here and <laughs> then having children that aren't from where he's from, too. Like, that would be interesting. You did mention the nonprofit that your family has started, plus that you're in MSU and you're in Blasian Narratives. I'm going to put links or or social media handles to all of this stuff in the show notes but why don't you drop whatever you can drop in terms in the show for the people who don't check show notes let's start with uh, how people can find blazer narratives okay so people can find blazer narratives on facebook as blazer narratives and then instagram as blazer project okay and then i think on both of those we have like some kind of link to a zine we made last year and then our Instagram also has a submission link for a zine we're working on right now. That's okay. about uh, heritage foods. Okay. Ooh. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be all up in this mess right now. I'm so mad that I'm only coming to it now, but I'm, I'm going to get all up in there. Um, okay. So that's the Blazion Project. How do we get uh, access to the nonprofit your family started? Um, so it's called Asian Americans for Housing and Environmental Justice. Okay. Um, I have... Um, We have a fundraiser going, I think, on that page on Facebook. And um, 
We also post about it on, I think, our restaurant page, which is called Revolutionario. Okay. And so, yeah, right now we are doing, we work with this one um, senior home in Koreatown that has about 20, 25 um, Korean seniors. And so we, um, like, give them, like, cleaning supplies, um, like, toilet paper, soap, um, huge pots of soup a couple of times a week. And then we also buy, and then we also have found, like, individual seniors, like, in different, like, apartment complexes. So we'll, like, do drop-offs over there. And we are now partnering with a lot more, like, restaurants so that instead of, like, us making a bunch of food, we can also give back to the local economy by buying from local businesses, especially Asian businesses. Mm -hmm. They're being hurt the most right now. And then you said there is an element of that organization that is also supporting black senior citizens. Is there a home that you're, that you're connected to there as well? Or mm-hmm. an apartment complex. Um, I think it's the Chesapeake apartments and we've been making like these little like goodie bags with like rice, beans and other things to drop off a couple of times a week. Okay. Awesome. Okay, so that's, and then MSU, everybody heard about a couple weeks ago, but again, that is the mixed student union at UCLA, and some of the handles are MSU UCLA, and some of them are UCLA MSU, right? Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for joining the show, and um, don't forget to be a mixed SLs. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Militantly Mix is a main hustle media podcast produced and hosted by me, Charmaine Fury. Music is by David Bogan, the one. You can follow us on social media on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Militantly Mixed. If you'd like to become a sponsor of Militantly Mixed, please go to patreon.com slash militantly mixed for monthly sponsorship or paypal.me slash militantly mixed for a one-time only donation. And if you like what you hear on Militantly Mixed, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to be your mixed-ass self. Main Hustle Media. Turn your side hustle into your main hustle.